Hello Ramblers, Andy here. Welcome to the latest Ramble Meets in which I'm delighted to say my guest was none other than one of my favourite footballers, former Wimbledon and Charlton and various others, forward and midfielder, Jason Yule. We talked about the Dons, of course, um, about the post-crazy gang football in School of Hard Knocks that he developed him, but there's a lot more to Jason than being the only player I can think of to have a chant about him to the tune of Lola by the Kinks. He's now an experienced coach of several years standing back at Charlton and looking to make the next step having paid his dues and we're talking some depth about where the game needs to go to get more black managers and directors on board. Jason's a guy who studied hard and is very knowledgeable about how things roll in the boardroom as well as on the touchline. So he has some fascinating perspectives on this. Anyway, I very much hope you enjoy it and find it enlightening and interesting. This is Ramble Meets Jason Yule. appealing in vain towards the referee's assistant. No response. Graham Paul says the goal stands. It's two for Jason Yule, it's two for Charlton. Jason, if I could start off by simply putting forward the words quasar boots, what do those mean to you? John Fashion, you. (laughs) (laughs) Size 12 or 13 they were. And I used to get a bag on a month, black bag on a Monday with a red pair, blue pair, black pair, even some casual shoes in there for a bit of polish. So, (laughs) yep. People might go Gary Lineker. I'm going John Fashion. <laughs> it, uh, it's funny because you're one of those guys, really, who's sort of on the cusp, aren't you? You may be like the last generation who had to clean boots and muck out and do all that sort of stuff that apprentices uh, had to do. What was it like doing that at Wimbledon, which we have the impression of being quite a brutal environment? It, it was. I mean, even from a Wimbledon point of view, but even speaking to players that have been through it from my generation, and they saw it as they, they saw it as part of the norm, but also as it was part of keeping yourself grounded, making sure that you've done things properly. You had that respect element, and just the graft of having to earn your place and for us at Wimbledon it was always knowing that if we didn't do the job properly not only is it me and my partner who would reap the the retributions it then followed into the group so it was one of them ones where it's you put that into a football context if one or two make a mistake it has a knock-on effect to everybody else and just speaking from a Wimbledon point of view, that's what we were all drummed in about. It was about us as a group because it was always under the cosh or classes, the underdog. So we knew that we couldn't afford to have bad days. So we always knew that those jobs had to be on point. All the time. Yeah, it's going to be, it's time where it didn't, but that was a test of strength and character in itself when it came for the forfeits of having to do certain runs as of, 
not doing the job properly of myself and my partner or the whole team having to do it. So it sort of kept you in, in a way of making sure you, you, you took that pride and, and had that, that element of wanting to do your job properly. You talked about when you were a kid um, training at Plough Lane behind the, the main stand there which was kind of spit and sawdust. I mean, you're very connected. You work in the the modern game. When you see like young players in the, in the modern game, how different does it feel, especially when you've got high-class academies, not just in the Premier League, but in, in the Championship, to the sort of football upbringing you have? I mean, it's it's a different planet, really, isn't it? It is, and it's just how football world society is evolving and I always go back to it and we, we bring we bring it up a lot with boys in my group that are all ex-players and everything where it's it, a ball on the wall it was the simplest thing to enhance your football skills and nowadays we're saying is how many kids actually do that now just go outside and have a and kick a ball against the wall and work on things I know that Certain areas don't allow you to do that no more because parents are a little bit more wanting to know that the kids are in their rooms and safer and they're playing their Xboxes and PS4s. But mm. it just shows that if you can have the basics of equipment, how far you can get from it. And where we are now, this is only trying to enhance the players' needs to become an elite athlete. But not every club has got that, as you know. So you have to find other ways to to get yourself on that level. And if it's not from a, a technical or tactical point of view, it's got to be in terms of strength, mentality, and having that togetherness of, well, we haven't got what they've got, but we're just as good. Let's go and show it. So it can actually throw it can actually work in, in differently on both scenarios where some will just think, because I'm used to this and I've got all of this, it's going to be easy, which, which is not. And I always stem back to when I left Wimbledon to Charlton, which were very similar in terms of, not as similar in terms of, obviously Wimbledon was a public, a public training ground, but the environment of what you had around you for training. So when I went to Middlesbrough, it was like, wow, like, look at this. And in 2006, for me, that was still a big wow, but it was actually starting to get dated from when it first originally opened up at Rockcliffe. But it was yeah. an eye-opener to think, well, this is sort of like how the other half live in terms of the training ground and what it's like. But I, I look back at that, going down to, to the back of the terraces at Plough Lane, on concrete, there was the, the sand pit, that had the goal mouth in the back, we're using that for keepers and they're doing it for their training as that's where my beginnings began. And that's coming from a ball on the wall into the back of a terrace on concrete. And whatever you think of how difficult it was when, when you started out at Wimbledon, it did give you and so many of your peers, um, I, I guess I'm thinking of people like uh, Chris Perry, Neil Ardley, the ability to prove yourselves as, as as premiership players and and go on and and play at a, a fantastic level for a number of years, but 
obviously you weren't in the thick of the original crazy gang which was like the the mid to late 80s when you think of dave bassett running the show and wally downs and dave Bezant and and people like that um but there was this crazy gang documentary wasn't there on bt a, a couple of years ago mm. and um what do you, what did you make of that did you did you think it sort of embellished the legend and some of it was a little bit exaggerated i mean some people talked about the line being quite thin between motivation and bullying what did you and your peers think of that when when you saw that i mean you must have discussed it with your old teammates no it, it was a bit of that and i still meet up with all the boys every year every christmas we we all meet up and that is down to a Sanch, um, Dean Holdsworth, Gary Elkins, mm. Terry Gibson, Mick Harford, uh, people that were in around it. Chris Perry is a sort of the next generation, myself, Neil Wiley. Neil. So we meet up every year. And from how you look at it as a close to sort of the, the mentality or the morale to, to bullying, it's created a great bond between us from it, regardless of what line you think it was close to. We're all still good friends now we're in contact. We're in the group chats. We're still catching up and some are like Robbie L and Warren Barton, they're living in America now and Gary Elkins is a prison warden and things like that. So it just shows that from the fine lines that you can get, it's the togetherness you can get from that the after effects or the afterlife of football and you can still go back and say oh, I can remember when that happened or I can remember when that happened and just have those memories some probably not always as good memories depending on certain things that happened but at least it's a bond of something which we're all a part of and that we can continue to keep going back and say well yes I was and we were a part of something which was very unique but coming through and seeing it it was a unique environment to be around and the, the people and the players that came through that you had to have, you had to have a bit of character about you to, to survive that. And that's what from, if I'm talking my era of a joke in here, who's the manager, he'd done that as part of his recruitment to try and continue probably not as in depth as what the crazy gang was about, but just still continue that spirit of the crazy gang. We'll come back to Joe Kinnear in a minute um, because that, he's someone who I wanted to discuss. But let's talk about going all the way back to when you were a teenager, your debut goal for the first team against Southampton. And it was an incredible goal as well, a sort of bicycle kick from outside the penalty area. I mean, you must have thought at that moment, I've really arrived. I mean, what kind of a moment was that for you? Do you know what? I didn't think anything of a way of I've arrived. And people always go, well, you must have done because it's your debut and things like that. I've always wanted to become a professional footballer and I got that when I signed my pro deal. But I still wasn't a professional footballer. I'd sign a pro contract. I was still playing reserves football. It's My thing was I want to be a professional football when I've become established in the first team. But even from getting that call up from the Friday morning training when FM went in injured and I got called over and Reg, so Dean Oldsworth said to me, are oh, you going to start tomorrow? And I was like, okay, yeah, cool. Not a problem. 
it didn't phase me at all because it's what I wanted to do. And just playing yeah. in that game as my debut was, okay, Nat, I'm, I'm here now. I want to stay here. And to cap it off with the goal and the type of goal that it was is the moment you don't forget as your debut and the goal that you scored. And that's where you want to use that as your platform, your springboard. So I, I got to that point of, right, I'm in around the first team now. I didn't feel I was properly a part of that until I was established. And it might sound a little bit sort of knocking it off or not giving myself the credit or anything like that, but it's just how I, how I was as a player. But the moment of wanting to become a professional, being able to score on your debut, it's, yeah, it's what everyone dreams of. And I achieved that dream. And I'm, you, know, you talk about it now, I can still picture it in my head. And it's that I won't forget, but I saw myself as a professional once I fully established myself in the first team. So did people treat you any differently, do you feel, after that moment? Did they expect more of you? Did you expect more of yourself? Well, Sam, Sam sort of put a lot, on, a lot of pressure on me from the beginning anyway, because I came from the back end of my apprenticeship scoring 52 goals that season. And then we had a quick turnaround and we were in the Intertoto Cup. So I think we had about two, three weeks off. And then all of a sudden we're in the Intertoto Cup, which is sort of now Europa League. And he'd done this article and he put me as the new king, the king of Wimbledon, like because of the goals I scored in the youth team. And I'm, I'm the king, I'm the king. And that was the nickname that I had from the boys coming in those earlier years. And then it got turned to Pele. I don't know why, but (laughs) like I said is with the group of players that we had, they made sure you was grounded. They never let you get ahead of yourself. And I wasn't that type of player anyway, or person to get ahead of myself because I knew that it can all come crashing down very quickly. But they made sure that something like that never got to, got to anyone's head. No one was ever bigger than who they thought they were. And again, that was something which was unique about it. Like we could, everyone always hears the terms of big time Charlies and stuff like that. Yeah, that gets bandied around, but it was always in jest because you knew you couldn't get to that level. And that was what Wimbledon was about. Even as a young kid, as a 15, 16, 17 year old, it was making sure you knew you knew your place. And that wasn't in a way of people not giving you the credit. It was just so that you fitted in in a way of how you had to be around the place. But the pressure was, was always there. And I, and I love pressure because that's what football is. Football is pressure. And I love being under that. But it, for me, it just enhanced me even more to try and fulfil as much as I could do when I played every game. So you talked about Joe Kinnear and that atmosphere that that he created obviously he was a very important coach for you he's a very important coach for 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 Wimbledon at at that time um how do you look at him now because I guess when people look at him from a more modern perspective they they think of his spells at Newcastle United and it was a particularly chaotic club at the time and because um he was an unusual appointment um, because of his health scares, because he was a bit erratic in press conferences and got players' names wrong. He's kind of made a figure of fun, isn't he? But he actually did an incredible job with you guys, didn't he? Yeah, because 
it's, it's, his, it was all about, like I said, his character and the team he built around him with, I mean, Joe was more of a, a manager. Terry Burton was the coach. And at the first time it was, right. um, oh, I can see his face. Dave, Dave, Dave. Kemp. Kemp, yeah. Kemp, he was there for a few, a couple of years. We had Mick and Sanch done the reserves over a couple of seasons, sort of chopping and changing. So he had the right people around him. And for, for how he was, and you mentioned about not getting people's names right in press, that was the norm for him, that we had Keith Galepsi, <laughs> we had <laughs> Jarzinho, we had Kamikaze, you know, we, and it was okay. Yeah, we know he's on about. So that's that's just that's just how he was. So we we knew that. And again, it's if people don't know who he was, they take it and see it as fun. Like there's loads of managers out there that just forgets people's names. But for him, it's something that stuck. But I just think in a way of where we were at that time of football. Maybe a club like Newcastle wasn't the perfect fit for him. So like you said, is it seems like all the good work that he did at Wimbledon all of a sudden become undone because of that spell. Mm. And that's that's just the harsh realities of football. That's how things can, like I said, you can go from being up to being crushed back down so quickly. But he was he was the one that continued the sort of upward rise with Wimbledon from, from where we were from sort of 88 onwards. And he continued that to, to the, to the run that we had in the Premier League. And he shaped you as a player a bit as well, because you came into the team as a centre forward. And then he kind of converted you into this attacking midfielder. I mean, what was the thinking behind that? Was the idea that you would succeed Robbie Earl, or did he see something in you that no manager or coach had necessarily committed to with you before how did that work out so me growing up I always played centre midfield or left midfield that was where I grew up and played all my football it wasn't until I got scouted by Wimbledon at 12 I went into Wimbledon as a centre forward because they sort of saw me as this tall gangly type of player and sort of saw it as that big man little man thing so Throughout my, from the years of me going to Wimbledon as a 12-year-old, that was the only team that I played up front for. And then even doing my apprenticeship, I was a centre-forward. But that opportunity to come and play centre-midfield, we were, it was the West Ham game. We was losing 3-1, and we come, or well, 3-0. Then Gailey scored just before half-time to go 3-1. Yeah. And we ended up winning 4-3. So we got to... I think it might be midway through the second half and Robbie went off injured. So he pushed me back into midfield with New Ardley and then brought on Clarky, I think it was. I think FM was the first sub. So, sorry, it was Carl Lieben that came on at half time. Then it was FM, I think, and then Clarky. So he basically went sort of 4-2-4 four, four, and he just said, the new Ali just said to me, look, I'll just sit, you just go and bomb and join in. And that's actually how I got my goal, just by bombing in and joining on. And then I think the next game came, we went to Villa. I think it might have been on the Saturday and Kyle Lieber and got sent off quite early in that game. So I think because we had Gailey playing, 
he put me into midfield and I think we went 4-4-1-1. And that's sort of where it started from. And it sort of came to the odd time of going back up front to when we started playing 4-3-3 when we got Michael Hughes in. And then it was like myself, Robbie L and Neil Wardley were sort of like the three centre midfielders. And then it was like an Andy Roberts come in and that's where I started to get that midfield type of role because it was in a way of a bit more energy, a bit more legs, having a senior head with Robbie in there that could just sit. Me and Niwali can do our bits. So you sort of saw it as an extra string to, to the bow for the team in where else can we get our goals from? If I can create another attacking midfielder, I can still have a certain amount of attacking players up front. And it, it just came out of sort of luck really or unfortunate in Robbie's Robbie's sense of there's an opportunity yeah. for me to go in midfield. So post Joe Kinnear, Egil Olsen comes in. By this point, oh. Sam Hamam's are you right there? No, it was just when you mentioned his name, Egil, I went off. Oh, oh right. okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm fine. So, it, it did happen, sadly. <laughs> anyway, this is post-Sam Hamam. There's new Norwegian ownership at, at the club. What went wrong in that final season? Is it just the vibe around the club has changed? Did Egil Olsen, who was quite a decorated coach, come in at the wrong time? Was he not a good fit with you guys? Because if you look down the squad for that final season in the Premier League, it's hard to think of another Wimbledon squad that's got that much quality. But it ended up in relegation. It was... What happened was it was trying to... It was like the quick fix scenario, but it went wrong because of the way that you was the way that we were trying to play didn't suit the players that we had so right. wimbledon we were full of energy we got in people's faces we made it hard for teams to play and that was our strengths throughout the whole time and then eggel came in and all of a sudden it was very static very zonal and a very slow tempo so you've got these players that are, we're all used to playing a certain way for the last four or five years. So all of a sudden is now we've got to go from fifth gear and now playing second gear. And it just knocked us because it was something that we wasn't used to doing. No matter how much we've done it on the training ground of trying to, to revert to this new style of play that Egor wanted us to do and when we had the ball in being even more direct and trying to pick up second, it it just wasn't the fit for the personnel that we had. And that's one of the reasons, well, that is the reason why we got relegated. As much as we had all of the quality that we did, we wasn't allowed to play in or play with the quality of the players that we had. So we've had all these players of good quality, but we weren't allowed to use it because that's what the manager that's what the manager didn't want. So we became so a very feel, sorry, go on. I was gonna say, do you feel as a coach then he was he was quite inflexible? Yeah, totally. It was a strict four five one when we haven't got the ball. If a ball goes from one centre midfielder, the person who's in that line 
will run up and press the ball. If the ball moves square, you don't go and chase the ball. You drop back into your zone. And we wasn't used to that. We were used to putting pressure on the ball. If the ball got moved, can you go and put pressure again? If it got moved again, could you go and put pressure on it? If you couldn't, that's fine. But we were literally playing in straight lines. We were playing up and down and left and right. And like I said, it just didn't suit the players that we had because of what we've been used to for such a long time. So we were being retrained to do something which was out of our actual uh, mindset. The self-styled governor, Sam Hammam, has got one or two internal problems, we're led to believe, within the club, but on the pitch, not too much wrong today. Kimball. Ewell. The hand around the shoulder from Williams. Well, Ewell is still going. It's a good play by Jason Ewell. And that's a really good goal by Jason Ewell. Wimbledon's fourth. And they're heading for their biggest win under Egil Olsen. So, uh, do you have a season in the championship where you, you score a, a lot of goals, um, but but the club's not really going anywhere? When you get to Charlton for what at the time was quite a lot of money. I mean, geographically, it's a, a small leap, but how different did it feel? I mean, it felt like a club going somewhere. I was due to go to Charlton at the start of the championship season, right? And offer got an offer got put in, and then I got injured in training. And they went and moved on and got Jonathan Johansson and Klaus Jensen. And I stayed for that season of championship, got the goals. And for me at that time, it didn't feel like it was a big miss in terms of missing out on that move. I saw it as well. I'm still at Wimbledon. I'm still here. We're in a championship. I'm going to do whatever I can to try and get us back promoted. By scoring the goals, obviously that enhanced the opportunity to go back and go back or go to Charlton at that time. Mm. And even for the record fee that it was, it sounds very small now, 4.75. If you go back to and you mentioned pressure again, I didn't feel pressure. I thought it was in a way of, okay, that's the price they paid for me to do a job. That's what I'm going to go and do. And mm. Geographically, it, it fitted because only the year before I'd moved from southeast to come over to southwest. And then now all of a sudden is I'm just doing that same journey, but just going the other way now. <laughs> so it just, it, it, it just worked anyway. So it was a little bit of like a sort of groundhog day in terms of my car journey because when I was going from southeast to southwest, it was myself and Carl Lieburn doing it. And then all of a sudden now I'm just going back the other way. So it, it worked logistically and geographically for me. And just the way that the club was, or yeah, say was back then, was that same family orientated feel to what Wimbledon was, who have come through their struggles and have built themselves back up. So it just felt like a, a right fit for me at that time to go from one family club to another family club and still be in London at home. You talk about the similarities. When you start playing at the Valley, I mean, they'd been at 
Selhurst for years. And I guess by the time you arrived, they'd been back at the Valley like nearly a, a, a decade. But looking around and seeing how they got through the Selhurst experience and come back and refound their identity, did it make you think what Wimbledon could have been if things had gone a little bit differently? Oh, yeah, totally. Totally, because me being on the terraces at Player Lane watching them play from when I got to the club in 89, I think, 89, to them moving to Selhurst and then going to Charlton and seeing right there back home now and then seeing the new West Stand being built. North, I can't remember which one it is. North Stand, never, never eat shredded wheat. North Stand being built. You just thought this is where Wimbledon should have been. But it, it, was, it just wasn't meant to be then. And knowing that you're now going to a club which are growing after coming up, being relegated, coming back up, and now I'm part of that new journey, which I was, which I was a part of, of that four, five, six-year stint continuously in the Premier League, which established them as a growing club in the Premier League. And by going there, I just thought, one, this is the stage I'm going to be playing at in front of, I think it was 21,000 sellout every week to when it went to mm. 26,000 sellout every week when we played at home. Now that's that's what I wanted to that's what I wanted to be doing when I played because when we were playing at Sellers Park at home we're getting sometimes between eleven and sixteen thousand I think it was only for Man United we get a sellout so you're only getting that sort of high twenty thousands once twice once twice a year when you're playing at home but it just give give or gave me that. This is where I want to be. This is what I wanted to be wanting to do as a pro footballer, playing in front of your home fans and sell out and trying to give them the best Saturday afternoon or Tuesday night, whatever, whenever you could. So when you look back at that, when you look at back at playing in front of a full valley, um, a club that's consistently in the top half of the Premier League, your top scorer in the first three seasons, you think of scoring against Liverpool on the 10th anniversary, going back to the valley. There's that game where you beat Chelsea and you got a couple and there are a lot of goals. Is is this your your best spell as a footballer? Those first three seasons at Charlton. Yeah, and I think the the, the numbers the numbers add to that, like you said, with the goals and everything that I scored. And even with the time of entering the second season back in the Premier League and the third season back in the fourth season, there was always pressure every year for us to be doing better, and. Every year we were signing better players. So then that even puts more pressure on the manager because he's spending more money. It puts pressure on you because now there's sort of better competition in the building who are after your place. So it just, like I said, is the pressure. I didn't, I didn't feel it when I played, but it's just knowing that you just have to be on point all the time because you know there's someone else who's got just as much as quality or you've got that's ready to come in and take your place. So I saw those those years as as sort of I've, when I look at it now, those are the best years before it sort of started going a little bit downhill in terms of footballing um, numbers. Um, the rewards at the end of the seasons of retaining the Premier League status of things like that. So I would say yes, because I've I went there as a goal scorer with the fee 
and actually doing that by scoring the goals, definitely those first three seasons made made it the move that I wanted to to do and it and happen at that time. I mean, when you talk about the, the the pressure at Charlton and wondering what's coming next before sliding backwards, um, I mean, when you, when you ended up going there for your second spell, they're in League One, weren't they? When you when you arrived back there, um, it's a funny thing, isn't it, with with the modern Premier League? And it's a bit of a quandary for clubs like Charlton, and we've seen it for with others like I guess Swansea, for example, would be quite a good example. When you're a club of a sort of medium size you get established in the premier league you finish like seventh eighth consistently and i remember a friend of mine who was a charlton season ticket holder saying to me at the start of one season that he'd stopped renewing his season ticket and i said well why, why is that and he said well it's boring finishing seventh in the premier league every year isn't it and when you think where <laughs> charlton have gone since it sounds a, a mad thing to say doesn't it but it's very difficult for those clubs and i guess you could look at stoke as well as a, another example how is it at that sort of club where you you recognise that there's a ceiling? And that's something even more now, isn't it, with the top like five or six in the Premier League really established? I mean, how do you keep going, like knowing you've you've hit that ceiling and there's nowhere really to go from there? The thing is for us, we we never sort of saw it as let's just survive. And I know it that's that's what it actually looks like. But we, we never went into a season of let's just survive. We looked at mm. every season we went into was let's do as well as we can. And like you said, if it, if it was a seventh and then an eighth, we saw that as, well, we didn't do better than last season. We finished eight, yeah, brilliant. But last year we finished seventh. So we saw that as we didn't actually really have a great season. But one of the things that always happened to us was once we got to that 40 point mark, we used to, we used to fall away and we never knew why it wasn't because we were always looking at let's get to 40 points and survive. Like I said, is that wasn't in us. We always wanted to try and do as better than what we did the year before. And one, the season showed when we was up there in the champions league spots for a long period of time. And then we ended up falling away and we looked at it as like that was an opportunity to, to, to break the norm of finishing mid-table and completing another good season and we stay in the Premier League because it's great staying in the Premier League, but we never really wanted to just to be that let's stay in the Premier League team. We wanted to be that let's see what we can achieve while we're in the Premier League team. And that's probably harder for people to hear now because when you look at what the league tables look like, that's what it says. But we're always mm. looking to try and do better than what we did the year before. And in that second spell, uh, Charlton, you end up getting loaned back to, to AFC Wimbledon, which makes you, I think off the top of my head, the second player who played for both original Wimbledon and AFC Wimbledon after, I guess, Marcus Gale. So... I mean, you, you'd always had contact, hadn't you, with AFC Wimbledon? You and Gail and Ardley and a couple of the others came to some of the early games when the team was established in 2002. I mean, how much did you know about the club and what did it mean to to go back there and be part of the, the, the Phoenix club? I mean, always said was, I mean, when they restarted, went to the first game, one of the first games at Kings Meadow, I think we had myself, Ardley and Gailey, and always said is 
I would want to go back to the club in some capacity. And obviously at that, that time was, was a player where I'm at now would be coach manager. Always said I would love mm. to go back in some capacity. When I got the call, it was weird. It was strange because I think Twitter actually found out about the inquiry before I actually found out. So <laughs> with Terry Brown and Cashy that were there at the time and Simon Bassey, Simon Bassey I've known from when I first joined Wimbledon as a 12-year-old. So he was still there at that time. So I always had that link at Wimbledon as well as sometimes bumping into Ivor or Eric when he's, when I was living around Kingston, I'd always sort of sometimes bump into him. So I always had that that connection, still went to the odd game if I was around. So I still had that affiliation there all the time. And I remember getting the call to say, we've had the interest, do you want to go? And I was, oh, hell yeah, of course, definitely. So it wasn't, but it was when I got off the phone, I had to go into a shop and I went on Twitter and I actually saw it on Twitter, people going, oh, Jason Yule's coming back. And I was thinking, I've just got off the phone to agree it. <laughs> so, <laughs> literally, I've like just got off the phone to say, yep, okay, I'll do it. And even by going back there, I just felt, yep, this was meant to be. But going there and not having the success I would like to have had when I went disappoints me because people will see it as he's gone back at the end of his career. He wasn't the same player. The fact was when I played my first game away at Port Vale, I came off injured after 40 minutes. I got clattered from behind and mm. it ruled me out for that first month. I was supposed to have been out for like six weeks. I actually forced myself to try and play after about four weeks, which is where we extended for a second month. So I was actually I was actually playing through an injury for that second month because I wanted to have an effect on the team and stand in the league, obviously first year being back up. So as much as I I loved the experience and of going back and being a part of it from a personal side of, I thought that I didn't fulfill what I wanted to have done. Does that make sense? It, it does. Speaking of the injury though, how how difficult did you find it to adjust to, to League Two football? Because give or take a, that, a little bit of that second spell with Charlton and playing with Southampton, the, the large bulk of your career is is spent in, in, in the Premier League. So when you're in your 30s, going back and, you know, with those good intentions of helping a club that you you care about, was it a bit of a shock being clattered about in League Two? Um, it was more, I was like, you know what? It was one of them ones where I was actually waiting for it because that's, that's the thing, it's, when I was at Southampton, when you said they're going from Premier League and going down to Championship, the first I, first year, I disappointed because I tried too much, tried too hard, tried to do too many other people's jobs rather than worrying about my own. Right. And then going to playing League One from that year at Charlton, I found it as okay, I know what it's going to be like. I've seen League One, how it plays, wasn't a problem. Knowing I was going to League Two, more physical, I knew I was going to get clattered. 
And before I actually did get that injury, I got clattered five minutes before that. And because I saw it coming, that's what, him, that's what sort of made the rage for the one where he did get me because he missed me the first time because I saw it coming. Right. So it was one of them ones where I got injured because the person fouled on their first attempt. So it was knowing what I was going into, one, because it was my first game going back, and two, I knew what the level was going to be like. So when I was playing in that second month, sort of carrying the injury, I wasn't as sharp as I wanted to be. I wasn't, um, oh, how can I say, mentally I was fine because I knew whenever I crossed the pitch, regardless if I was fit as 100% or 90% or 80%, I knew what yeah. I had to do. My mindset was always right. It's just when you are, when you have got that, that, that injury and you want to try and do as well as you can, I just found it hard because I couldn't move the way I wanted to. I wasn't as free knowing that I had to be even quicker because if I wasn't taking too long on the ball, I'll just get smashed again. So when you're at the club and you get a feel for what it's about and the direction that it's going in, I mean, still, even though they're back in the league at that point, did you think a move back to Plough Lane was ever possible or did it seem like too much of a leap? No, I mean, I've always... It, it was one of those ones for Wimbledon with, with what they did and how they did it, not, not only after the first time of leaving Plough Lane and then obviously getting to... Sellers Park and then coming back to AFC Wimbledon as it is now down in Kings Meadow, it's sort of, you're getting closer to home. So you can sort of see where the journey's going. You're sort of going away from your home, from Southwest to Southeast, to then coming back into Southwest London. You're only a 15 minute drive away from your spiritual home. You know, you're getting closer. And mm. with, with what the fans had done by creating AFC, getting them to King's Meadow, you could always see that getting back to player lane was going to happen. And if it was five years, 10 years, 50, you just knew it was going to happen. And now that we can go from 2000 and when was I there? 2012. And we're eight years down the line. And we know that it's going to be happening within the next year or probably even sooner is that was all part of the plan. Maybe people would have, would have liked it to be sooner. But like I said, is when you're going from southeast back to southwest to where you are now, is you're getting closer to your spiritual home. What do you think it will be like when you eventually go to a game there, presumably in the company of some of the players who you came up with? Of course, Neil Ardley's managed the club now, and Marcus Gale's part of AFC Wimbledon history. What what will it mean? It it would mean like for me it is always say that the, like Wimbledon, the club, the fans that gave me the opportunity to to start my career, and I always say is I'll be indebted to that because they're the ones that were on the terraces through thick and thin at Sellers Park. They're the ones that sang your name. They're the ones that booed you. They're the ones that paid your wages. You, you, you are, well, I owe a lot to them. And by being able to be there on that first first home game, if I'm about for that, it's this is more what they deserve 
if anything. You know, that's what they deserve as Wimbledon fans because they've now gone into their next generation of family or next generation of supporters who have bought into the history and wanted to be a part of the plan of let's get this club back to Plough Lane. So it will be, be a special day, without a doubt, an emotional day because Wimbledon have played not just a massive part in my footballing career, but a massive part in my life because I was there for 12 years. And 12 years at one place in anybody's life is a long time. And that's what Wimbledon has been for me. So you, you said if you're free, of course, you're well into your own coaching career now. Was it always the plan? I mean, did you imagine yourself when you were first a pro becoming a coach later on? Or was it an idea you picked up going along? Have you always thought about the game in, in, a, in a tactical fashion? Oh, always, always. From, from my younger years, I was always a talker. I was always someone that, that understood the game. I was always someone that could give information, give help, because I just always saw it as that. I was, as I said, I was always a talker on and off the pitch when it came to, when it came to football. And yeah. always knew that when I finished, people always ask, oh, what do you want to do when you finish playing? And I always said I want to be involved in football in some capacity. And if that was a coach, manager, or in another area behind the scenes, I always thought I wanted to be involved in football in some capacity in a way of giving back and helping the next generation. And coaching was, for me, always that route where because of who I was as a person in the way that I saw the game and played it, that was the route I would take as one option. So I started my, my coaching course when I was 30, 31. Then I stopped, started again at 33, I think it was. Mm. And I've just been on that coaching journey to where I'm at now. So all the qualifications are done. There's only other qualifications within the game that I could go and get, but it's not the coaches, it's not the qualifications I need to, to become a manager, if that makes sense. I've, I've got all of that now. So going through that process was now I've, I've, I've worked my way up the ladder in terms of qualifications in both the pro game and the academy game. I'm fulfilling that duty of doing the under-16s, now doing the 23s of the pathway ladder of trying to, trying to do my pathway that way in terms of the experience of working my way up the development ladder to then getting up to first team level. So coaching was always one of the agendas where I thought that's an option to stay in the game. And I've also got a, a, a qualification in corporate governance. So that can obviously help me from the other side of the game in the boardroom. So opportunities to affect it from the other side of the football in line, if we make, if that makes sense. I was just going to say that um, understanding how the game works at boardroom level, I mean, that's something that a lot of head coaches don't know. I mean, that could be a real advantage for you as a, as a first-team coach, isn't it? Which presumably is the aim now. Yeah, no, the, the, the aim is, is to become, however people word it, head coach, manager. That, that's, that's, where, that's where I want to be. That's what I want to do. I always went into football wanting to play at the highest level. I achieved that 
And when I started the coaching journey, it was to, to coach, manage at the highest level. And that's where I'm working towards. But then also, if you look at knowing and having an understanding of what a boardroom looks like, how it works, and you can bring a football in element to it, not just as the player, but also as a coach, you know, that gives a different dynamic to that, to that boardroom and a different, a different voice, different expertise of how you can create a successful and a dynamic boardroom. So giving myself options of ways to, you know, to, to continue staying in the game. I mean, no one could accuse you of not being meticulous in terms of the way you're preparing yourself. I mean, you know about the game from every angle. You've been coaching at Charlton for almost seven years. I mean, when you came in uh, for that second spell at Charlton, Chris Powell was the boss. Did you get a sense then of how significant it was being a black manager in the English game? And come to think of it, in any European league, and like how how difficult it is to to find a job for an aspiring black manager. Oh, it is, and like I said, that's the reasons why I've done it the way I've done it in terms of can I get the opportunity from the coaching environment of getting to the top? Can I get the opportunity of getting into a boardroom from from what I've done as a black person, as a black coach? I saw it as when I played, the pathway was created for me in terms of being able to play as a black person. Me playing is showing the younger generation of if Jason can do it, I can do it. And that's the same thing I want to go and do now as a coach going into management. If there's young black coaches that are in and around now looking at what I'm doing and what I'm achieving, it can inspire them. If I then get to the top, it can inspire them even more. But I know that there are boundaries to break. And that's where I want to put myself in the best opportunity of being able to break down that barrier. At the moment, the only barrier that will get said for me at the moment is your experience. But how am I going to get that experience unless I get that opportunity? Others may say it's because it is the color of my skin, because there isn't too many black managers out there. But it's shown that there are jobs there for black managers. It's just now we need to get more black managers and more black coaches higher up the ladder so then we can start getting more black coaches and managers at the highest level to start now showing others behind us that there is the opportunity. So for me, it was always about wanting to do it for me, but also wanting to show the way for others as well. Clearly, this is a big discussion um, in the world, but also in, in, in football at the moment. And something we're seeing is a lot of young back players, and I mean, sort of under the age of 23, 24, you think of um, guys like Marcus Rashford, Jaden Sancho, who are very socially aware, who are very keen and confident on speaking out in, in that kind of thing. Do you, Do you think... As a black coach, part of your pastoral responsibility, and there is a huge pastoral responsibility in being a youth coach, isn't there? And it's something I know you've talked about before. What tools do you feel you have to give to young black players to deal with situations they might face? And how do you feel the game has changed since you were a young pro? Like you said, it's 
I had this conversation yesterday with someone. Me growing up as a young pro was a lot of white faces in the hierarchies as first team managers, first team coaches. Now we're starting to see more faces of colour in and around younger um, academy football going into 16s, 18s, 23s. We just need now more to start going to senior levels. And with these young players that are now growing up with it, it seems to be the norm for them to seeing people with people with colour in and around them as an under nine to an under 13 to under 16 coach for it to be then not happening once they get to a senior level. And that's where we're talking about each individual where you have to, t- you have to deal with them differently. And with, with young players, young black players is their upbringing is totally different to some white people or some other people of color. And it's having the understanding of, well, what has this person or what's this player gone through throughout his years? He might need that extra bit of help and having someone of color there for him. And for those boys now doing what they're doing in terms of speaking up, yes, they're speaking up for them, but again, they're speaking up for others as well because now all of a sudden they're the ones that are now being being looked up to. Even though they're at that young age, they're being looked up to by others in a way of, well, that's where I want to go. And for them, with them speaking, is their way of trying to create opportunities for myself in a strange way. It's like the younger generation are speaking up yeah. for Jason Ewell, where before it wouldn't have been like that because said society evolves, football evolves, where the younger voices, you didn't really have a voice when we were growing up. I didn't have a voice when we were growing up because I said we were sort of put in our place as a younger generation, not saying that they're now getting out of hands. Yes, some are, but it's how you put it and how you articulate it where it's, these younger players now are looking for change as well. These younger, the younger generation of people are looking for change. And that's within football and within society now, as you said, in terms of what we're seeing, it's actually more of the younger generation that are wanting the change. And it's the older heads that are the ones that don't want to move from change. Now, finally, you're not just a coach and hopefully someday a, a manager, uh, but you're a broadcaster, you do co-commentary on, on TalkSport and various radio yeah. shows and podcasts. And you, at TalkSport, actually, you see a lot of former Wimbledon players in the corridors because you see you, you see David Connolly, Chris Perry, uh, Terry Gibson, all about. I mean... Does that make you think now, the fact that you are all in there, you guys, for your analytical abilities, does, does that make you think that Wimbledon and your generation, not just your generation at Wimbledon, always a little bit underestimated? Like people talked about Wimbledon, especially when they were first in the top flight, as this bunch of Neanderthals, really, players that no one else wanted. But actually people are starting to retrospectively realise that to get ahead and be able to compete on such small resources, you all had to be guys who were, who were smart and thinkers about the game as well as doers. Oh, massively, massively. Like I said, is with the way that Joe worked the recruitment was him getting the right people in the door. As much as 
getting the right players through the door. It was getting the right people through the door, which were able to, to, to take on board and grasp what he wanted. It wasn't rocket science, but what it was is in a way of being able to, to help you where you are now, like after life, after football or staying in football. And like you said, he's seeing a plug of talk sport and Dave and DC talk sport. Terry Gibson has been doing Spanish football for years. You know, it shows yeah. that from, from football, you, you can learn an awful lot from football. And if you're able to put that across to people that do understand it or are less understanding, but can make it clear and understandable, you know, it, it helps you. And that said, that comes from where you've been in your past and what you've taken from that. And like I said, is I've taken loads from my time at Wimbledon. I've taken loads from my time at Charlton, obviously still back there. I've taken loads from my time at Blackpool, Southampton, Middlesbrough. You, know, you, you take all of those things with you through, throughout your, your sort of footballing life and bring that to your afterlife. But like I said, is being at a club for, for 12 years that I was, you know, I've taken extreme amounts from, from that to where I'm at now. Well, look, thanks for being so generous with your time, Jason. And, um, well, hopefully we'll see you in, in charge of a first team no pretty problem, soon. No problem, Andy, no problem. Let's hope so. <laughs> this was a Stakhanov production.